Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to each and every one of you individuals who are interested in exploring lots of approaches, therapies, and methods that we have identified that are helping individuals currently diagnosed with the symptoms of Parkinson's find sustained relief from the symptoms that they currently experience. I'm your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. Parkinson's Recovery is dedicated to provide information, support, and resources to individuals currently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and members of their family as well as friends. So on the radio show programs, I recruit individuals who have lots of fascinating suggestions for what people might consider exploring that will, in fact, enable them to be able to celebrate a relief from symptoms, whether it's just temporary or whether it might be long term. So we consider lots of different possibilities as guests on the radio show that has a really full range of individuals all of these programs are available on replay you can connect into the radio show at any time of the day or at night and listen to any of the over 260 radio show interviews that i have now conducted with some amazing and remarkable individuals who again have a lot to say about what you can do to be able to celebrate relief from whatever symptoms you currently might be experiencing my guest today is the amazing Patrick Singleton, who is a person who is, I think, probably the guru of gurus when it comes to hypnotherapy and NLP. So uh, let me just check in and see, Patrick, are you there? I am here. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on Parkinson's Recovery Radio today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So please tell everybody a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, um, I grew up being fascinated by people and what makes them tick. Um, and I was kind of always the person that everybody told their problems to. And when friends would have arguments, I was always the person that was sort of called upon to kind of, you know, come in between and mediate and that kind of thing. And um, when I got older, I started uh, exploring personal growth and different kinds of things. And the first, one of the early things that I discovered was um, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. Um, And I was kind of amazed by it. I took a training and got certified. And then a few years later, I ended up being invited to teach NLP as part of a hypnotherapy um, certification program. And that was in 1997. And that same year, I also went through the hypnotherapy training and got certified as a clinical hypnotherapist. And um, I've been doing that work ever since. Um, I taught as an instructor at that school for 11 years. uh, No, I'm sorry, for 14 years before leaving in 2011 so that I could teach, um, have more freedom to teach the way I like to teach and to teach what I want to teach. Um, And so I still um, teach classes as well. 
Patrick, many people, of course, who are members of my listening audience uh, know a little bit about hypnosis and are pretty frightened about that possibility since their idea is with hypnosis, it makes you do things that you really don't want to be doing. So what are we really talking about when we're talking about hypnosis or hypnotherapy? Okay, great. So, well, the first thing to understand about um, hypnosis or hypnotherapy, however you want to describe it, is that, I mean, really, if you talk about what hypnosis itself is, hypnosis is a state of trance. And then we can say, okay, what is, what is trance? Well, really, the simplest way to understand trance is to say that it is um, a natural state of mind Really, it's a slower brainwave pattern than, than we have when we're fully conscious. When we're fully conscious, the dominant brainwave is beta brainwaves. That's about roughly from about 12 cycles a second all the way up to about 30 cycles a second. So by definition, anything slower than 12 cycles a second is a trance state. And the, the slower um, below 12, the deeper the trance state Lots of people, of course, who know a little bit about hypnotherapy have seen television shows where a person who's a hypnotherapist has a watch and they move the watch back and forth and then all of a sudden they're put into this stunned state where they're not even conscious. Is that the way this works? No. I mean, the thing about, you know, hip, hypnosis and hypnotherapy as it's portrayed on television and in the movies is that because most people don't know the truth about it and don't understand how it works, that gives writers a big degree of latitude to create all kinds of things to make for a story that might be either funny or more dramatic or more interesting than the reality of what it actually is. Basically, a hypnotherapist, you know, the first thing a good hypnotherapist does is an interview to find out you know, what is the problem? What does the person want to change? And what would they rather experience instead of that? And then after that interview, the hypnotherapist, we guide them into a trance state. They actually put themselves in trance. It's not the hypnotherapist who does it. We just give them the instructions for how to get there, kind of like a guide. As they follow our instructions, they put themselves in trance, which again is just a slower brainwave, which gives access to the inner, what I call the inner mind or the subconscious. But then I wanted to move into that trance state. Do I always have to rely on you to get me there? No. No, thank you for asking. The, because again, the trance state is something that's natural. And, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, we all experience natural trance states. And some natural trance states are um, when you're doing anything creative. If you do anything creative, whether it may be um, any kind of art or writing or dance or anything creative, when you're in that zone of uh, being engaged in your creativity, whatever form that may take, that's a trance state. If you're meditating or doing guided imagery, that's a trance state. 
if you're driving and you're on a long-distance drive that you're familiar with and suddenly you kind of look around and don't recognize where you are because you are spacing out thinking about other things, you're in a trance state. Those are natural trances. So um, once you learn a, a simple, reliable way to get to that trance state yourself, which we often teach people, we call that self-hypnosis, then you can easily guide yourself into a trance state anytime you choose. If in working with you as my hypnotherapist, I was able to move down into a very, very deep trance state, that is, the cycles were really slow, will I remember Mm -hmm. what happened? You will remember whatever is significant. You probably won't remember everything, but the truth is we don't remember everything about uh, what we experience anyway. We tend to remember what matters to us. Um, when I'm going to, when I'm working with somebody, as I'm doing what's called the count out, which is guiding someone back up to the conscious level, one of the suggestions that I give is that they will remember whatever is important to them. And I say it that way because I may have an idea of my own about what I think was the most significant thing that happened in a session, but that may not match what their inner experience is of what they thought was most significant. So I give a suggestion that they are going to remember whatever is most important to them to kind of facilitate that, but it's going to happen naturally anyway. Is it the case then that when I go into this deep trance state, I may actually be able to remember some events in my life that I have intentionally wanted to forget? While you're in the trance? Right. Absolutely. Now, so, okay, so that's a great question. So, and here's one of the things that, that we can talk about for a second. So um, there's one of the differences that we can describe of between conscious mind and subconscious mind. Consciously, the memory that we have available to us consciously of our lives is a fraction of what we've experienced. Most people probably remember 10% or less of their life consciously of what we've experienced. However, the subconscious contains everything you've experienced. And it needs to contain everything you've experienced because your subconscious mind uses the record of your life, your past experiences, in order to guide all of your automatic unconscious responses. So, for instance, if somebody had um, a childhood that was very um, traumatic, their unconscious automatic responses to things are going to be very different than somebody who had a, a childhood that was very idyllic or that was basically safe. So your subconscious uses the record of those memories even the ones you don't consciously remember, it uses those memories to guide how you automatically unconsciously respond to things. So when you're in trance, that's one of the reasons for going into trance is to be able to access memories that you don't have available consciously. I receive many questions from listeners, and many of them go something like this. 
I have this intense anxiety, especially these days with the lockdown, and I really don't know what to do about it. I'm just always on eggshells. Will this kind of therapy help with that at all? Well, it absolutely can help with that because, you know, one of the ways you can think about that is, so when you're talking about anxiety, you're talking about emotions. Well, emotions don't come out of nowhere. Now, in any person's in-the-moment experience, they may seem to come out of nowhere. We may not know exactly why we feel um, anxious, or some moments we may not even know why we feel fear or anger. But whatever emotion a person is feeling in any moment is always the result of something else. In other words, we have a feeling because of something we just saw. Or we have an emotion because of something we just heard or something we just read or something we just remembered or thought about. Emotion is always the second step. Emotion is always a response to something else. So when somebody has anxiety, even though they may not consciously know what that's about, um, we can help them change that experience. Absolutely. So a person that is experiencing problematic symptoms and they know that that's a result of stress and anxiety, would they be able Mm -hmm. to connect with you for, let's say, one session and be able to find sustained relief from all of that? So people, yes, can definitely, of course, connect with me. Uh, In terms of um, sustained relief and and, uh, session, the answer to that is it's going to be individual to everyone. Um, however, what I can say is that, you know, one of the things that I do to help people deal with emotions or that kind of thing is the same thing that I do to help people um, get over traumatic events or to even overcome phobias. And um, it's an adaptation of a very old NLP technique they used to call it the fast phobia cure. And basically what that technique does is it goes into a memory and erases the emotions, not the memory, just the emotion inside of the memory. So that afterwards the person will still know what happened, but it won't have any emotional impact anymore. It'll be kind of like, yeah, that happened, but so what? So when we do that kind of a technique, then whatever people um, may be anxious about in terms of a memory or an event or sometimes even an imagined possibility, then we can have a big effect on, on that. You have everybody on the edge of their, their seats. So erasing the emotion of memories, what's the eraser? How in the world can that happen? You know, it's interesting because So, as I said, that's a very early NLP technique. Now, the way NLP is taught is very pragmatic. They don't ever tell you exactly um, how or why a technique works. They just say, in this context, here's this tool that works. However, um, I'm one of those people that likes to know. It's like I'm one of those people that has to understand. And... Um, also, a lot of NLP techniques um, are very 
um, accessible and useful for people that are highly visual, and I'm not. I am more of a what's called a kinesthetic person. I'm a feeler. I'm a, I, I sense things. I can feel things. But generating imagery is hard for me. So when I learned NLP, I had to find a way to make those techniques, which were oftentimes very visual, to make them work for me, a feeling person. And when I did that, what it did was it sort of taught me how they work. And so I started to figure out how that technique works. How it erases the emotion is that, again, it, it goes back to what I was saying a moment ago. Emotions are always the secondary thing. Their emotions are always about something else. So the way I can explain it is if you take a piece of paper and you draw a line from left to right and you put an X that says event and then a little bit further to the right of that X, put an E, which stands for emotion. And then a little bit further to the right of that, put the word calm. Because when something negative happens, we have our initial response, but sooner or later, we're over it. Might be uh, a few moments later or an hour later or a day later. But at some point, we're not feeling the emotion we felt when that thing happened. That's our calm point. So, what we do in, in the technique is we establish a calm place before the negative thing happened, and we establish that calm place after the person was over it, and we run the memory backwards. When you run a memory backwards, the first thing they encounter is the emotion, but nothing has happened to create the, uh, that emotion when you're going backwards. Then after the emotion, they get to the event. Well, you can't have a feeling about something that's already over. In other words, I used to explain it to students this. Imagine you're walking down a street and suddenly you're terrified. And you look around and there's no reason to be terrified. And you think, well, that was weird. And then a minute later, a car backfires and sounds like a gunshot. You don't say, oh, that's why I was scared, because the sound happened after the fear. It doesn't make sense to link them up. Does that make sense to you? It, it does indeed. That's a fascinating explanation. So you can only link emotion to what happened before it. You can't link it to what happens after. So when you run a memory backwards five times very quickly, when they think about it, there's no more emotion anymore because it's kind of like those two things can't, they aren't connected anymore, the emotion and the event. And if they're not connected, when they think about the event, they don't have any emotion. I then also presume that this works effectively when a person is in somewhat of a trance state. Well, yes, of course. Now, I mean, 99% of, I mean, in my office or if I'm doing a session over the internet or the phone, I always guide the person into a trance state before we do something like that. So, yes. Now, in an NLP training, they don't do that. They just do it. They don't put people in trance first, and it still works. In my opinion, I think it works better if somebody is already in a trance state. I think it's easier, it's deeper, it's more elegant. And by the way, I've done that technique um, with vets coming back from Afghanistan. I've done it with people that were in New York when 9-11 happened. I've done it with kidnapped victims. I've done it with people 
uh, who've experienced all kinds of traumatic events, and it just clears it. Many people with Parkinson's are traumatized when they visit a doctor and are told that they have Parkinson's. And not only that, but that they're going to get worse. So there's a real trauma associated with that. Will this help with that kind of trauma? Absolutely. It doesn't matter what kind of trauma it is. Yeah, so when when, when that happens and somebody gets a diagnosis and they're told, you know, it's only going to get worse. Um, in, in the terminology of the work that I do, we call that a, a nocebo. A nocebo is the exact opposite of a placebo. A placebo is when you're told this inert thing is going to get rid of your pain or heal your, your uh, malady. That's a placebo. A nocebo is a similar thing. It's it's a negative message that then creates a negative effect because you believe the negative message. So when I work with people with health issues, we're often clearing nocebos. Now, listeners need to understand that Patrick is really, I introduced him as the guru of gurus. He really is the person who, Uh, is the person who's teaching other people to do this work as well as dealing with a lot of clients. And so, Patrick, I think you've had certainly some experience with persons who experience symptoms of Parkinson's. What's been that experience like? Well, I mean, in a way, it's very similar to working with somebody who has any kind of um, major health issue. Um, Oftentimes, you know, the first thing that we have to work with is to clear the trauma of that initial experience where they received a diagnosis, which was like the sentence of doom, that this is, this is now what your life is going to be like because of this. Um, and so that's oftentimes, you know, the first thing that we have to clear, whether it's somebody with Parkinson's or somebody with um, cancer or, you know, any other um, disease that they say is incurable. There's been quite a bit of discussion I know I have seen about whether or not a person can be made to go into a trance state. So if somebody were to say, well, there's no way that you can make me go into this trance state, what would be your response to them? I would say you're right. Because trance, um, people going into trance is a collaboration. There's an, there is uh, uh, an implied or an implicit agreement that happens. You won't go, you know, you might be startled into a trance briefly um, without having agreed to it. I think that's just part of human nature. We can be startled into trance, but you won't stay into trance unless you have the willingness to be there. So it's not, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I don't think I can go in trance because, you know, I have a really strong will. And I always laugh when I say that. And I say, well, well, the question is not, can you go into trance? The question is, do you want to? Because if you want to, that strong will is going to be very useful. 
if um, if you don't want to, then that strong will is going to keep you out of trance because it only happens by agreement. Patrick, you've uh, mentioned on several occasions NLP, and of course we've also been talking about hypnotherapy. Some people have mm-hmm. heard about NLP as something that, for example, news media uses to manipulate people into thinking certain ways or perhaps buying certain products. So tell us more about NLP. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll try and give you a, a succinct little Reader's Digest about NLP. So first of all, NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. It was developed in the early 1970s. Um, most commonly, there's two men that, that usually get all the credit uh, for, for developing it, Richard Bandler and John Grinder. Um, John Grinder was a professor of linguistics at the University of Southern California in Santa Cruz, California. Um, uh, Richard Bandler was a student there, and he was uh, like a computer guy, math science guy. But they were both fascinated um, by uh, communicators and people who, uh, especially exceptional communicators. And what the two of them started doing was studying people at that time who were exceptional communicators. And per- particularly in the beginning, they studied a lot of different um Therapists, and there were some very exceptional therapists around at the time. One was a man named Milton Erickson, who was a psychiatrist, who was a modern pioneer uh, in using hypnosis in his psychiatry practice. Um, and there's a whole ton of information about Milton Erickson, but he's one of the people that they studied. Eventually, they called that modeling, meaning that they were trying to unpack. How do these people get the results that they get when nobody else gets those same results? What are they doing that's unique and different that makes it work? So he was one of the people they studied. They studied a woman named Virginia Satir who pioneered, you know, a whole whole range of therapy that now broadly get called like family dynamics or family therapy or systems therapy, that kind of thing. Um, And then they studied a man named Fritz Perls who created something called Gestalt therapy. So they studied a lot of uh, really effective, unique communicators to figure out what they were doing that worked in ways that nobody else was getting the results. And supposedly, initially, the idea was that they could create a, a common language that people from different disciplines could share information and techniques so in the end, this resulted with a set of recommendations of how people can communicate effectively? Well, no. What it, what it resulted in was, well, it resulted in kind of two major categories of things. One category of things that it resulted in was a body of um, methods and techniques that were modeled after watching what these people did. They took what they did and and broke them down into doable steps and systemized them to, okay, here's this process that does that, here's that process that does this. So one side of NLP consists of specific techniques for specific types of things. And then the um, the other major 
area of NLP is what's called language patterns. And in the language patterns category, there's there's subcategories there. There's all the language patterns that they identified by studying the the words of Milton Erickson. Those things are called the Milton model because he's he was Milton Erickson. And that way of using language is kind of very permissive, and um, it's the 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 it's kind of being artfully vague in order to guide people into experiences without them necessarily being aware that they're being guided. The, the flip side of that coin are a series of language patterns that they got from transformational grammar, which was being developed at that time. Um, that part of the, the language patterns are called the meta model. And those are mostly lots of questions that ask for very specific information to get you know, somebody you're working with to get very specific about what or how or when or why they experience an issue so you can help them understand or you to understand what's going on with them to help them know how to change it. And then the, the third area of language is called sleight of mouth, like sleight of hand. And those are the kinds of language patterns that advertisers often pick up on and though that's a way of using language uh, in a way that's very subtle to influence the way people think, again, without them uh, necessarily noticing um, overtly how they're being influenced. Well, that's fascinating, Patrick. So what would be an example of a sleight of mouth technique that an advertiser would use? Uh, well, that's going to be hard to come up with a, a, a really good concrete example because it's not one of the areas that I, that I use a lot. Um, I tend to be more, um, more open and overt in how I work with people, but, uh, you know, a, a sort of a general example I can give is that one of the, um, you know, one of the techniques is something called embedded commands. And an embedded command is where there's a certain part of a sentence that's emphasized in a way that almost is telling you to do something. But if you just read the sentence without any emphasis, you wouldn't realize you were being told to do something. But by emphasizing certain words, it's almost like you create a separate message that says to the subconscious, do this, think this, feel that, see this. That's fascinating to me, Patrick. I'm your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. Uh, my guest today is Patrick Singleton. He's giving us some just fascinating insights into hypnotherapy and NLP. So as we step back, people in my audience have lots of options that they can consider for finding ways to get relief from their symptoms. Could you explain why this might provide some significant benefit that perhaps other therapies may not? Okay. Well, I can talk about, rather than to say what others cannot, that's not for me to say. I'm not a doctor. Um, but what I can talk about, certainly, is some of what um, what's available through these kinds of approaches. Um, 
One of the first things is, again, being able to help people deal with their emotions. Because one of the things about Parkinson's is that when uh, a person with Parkinson's relaxes, oftentimes um, uh, much of their symptoms um, diminish considerably. Uh, most people don't have any symptoms at all while they sleep. And, and people will often experience, um, if they have tremors or, or other things or stammers or other things, those things tend to go um, either away or to reduce significantly while they're in a trance state. So um, helping people to relax, helping them to learn to relax, to learn how to do that, helping them let go of old negative emotions because you know, one of the things about emotions is, um, you know, human beings don't like to feel negative emotions, and we're constantly bombarded with, through the all kinds of media, about, you know, if you're having any kind of a negative feeling, you know, take a pill, do this, you know, drink a Coke. You know, they're always using, you know, a negative feeling as the impetus to sell you some product so you don't have to feel that. Well, you know, then that just makes you a slave to a product, which may or may not deliver what they say it does. So one of the things that, that, you know, that I can help people with is to learn ways that they can be more in charge of their feelings. But also, since we don't like to feel our feelings, negative emotions tend to accumulate. Um, we, we keep them suppressed. And so it's like they get stashed every time something triggers you rather than express it in the moment, we kind of stash it. We stuff it down. Well, suppressed emotion in the body has an effect on the body. So we can release accumulated uh, emotion that is suppressed using that technique that I was talking about, that reversal technique. Um, and I can, and I teach people um, how to change what, you, the way you represent things in your head in order to decrease the emotional intensity of whatever those things represent. Well, it doesn't get better than that, if you ask me, Patrick. I mean, what a wonderful way to be able to begin to transform a person's life force. So I think you're talking about all sorts of issues. So, for example, if a person with neurological symptoms found that uh, they got depressed quite frequently and that they were eating all the time and that was their way of suppressing the emotions, it sounds like this is a way to be able to address that kind of challenge. Well, sure. But the other way you can think about it is that, you know, when I was talking to um, Steve, who you interviewed uh, a number of years ago, Steve Frazan, he was one of my students and you know, one of the things that um, he was saying is that, you know, he came to the conclusion after working with a number of people with um, PD that um, many of them had all experienced some kind of event that was either so traumatic or so frightening that when it originally happened, they went into a freeze response. And that freeze response of tense, release, tense, release kind of got generalized somewhere in the mind or the nervous system or the body and that may have been uh, uh, an influence um, on, on the Parkinson's. So when you address that, when you clear that, 
that alone can provide um, a lot of relief. Now, there's another aspect as well, because the, the subconscious mind runs the um, autonomic nervous system. So when you work directly with the subconscious, there are things that you can do to affect the nervous system. Like, for instance, in hypnotherapy and medical hypnotherapy, we help people deal with pain. So with people who have chronic pain, um, you know, we can teach them how to turn it down and sometimes to even switch it completely off or close to that so that they don't have to deal with that. And that makes it easier for them because either they can't keep doing the, the drugs to suppress the pain or the, they can no longer tolerate the side effects of those drugs uh, or after a period of time, the drugs don't seem to be working anymore and they're still dealing with the pain. So we can teach them to do that. So if we can affect the nervous system in that kind of way, just by directly working with the subconscious, the implications are that we might be able to at least somewhat ameliorate um, the symptoms of PD as well. A number of people that I talk with when we begin to address the issues of past traumas will say, well, I've never had any significant trauma in my life that I can remember. Of course, I have had a lot of stresses and anxieties in my life over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. So would you say to them, okay, look, you might not even remember a significant trauma, but still it sounds like that traumas may be a factor in affecting your symptoms? Well, yeah. You, I mean, now here's the thing about it. Um, one of the good things, that the, one of the good pieces of good news about this is that, so again, when somebody says that, they're telling you what they're consciously aware of, you know, which is that when I look at my 10% uh, of available information, I don't see any evidence of that. But just because it's not in their 10% of conscious memory doesn't mean it's not there, right? Now, the good news is that in that 90% that the subconscious has, um, not only does the – so let me back up a step uh, and, again, sort of talk about memory. So the way I think of it is that the reason that we have memory is because the subconscious is always on. It's always recording. It's the camcorder with a microphone that's always running. And various studies have shown that the recording happens um, at least from the moment of birth, potentially from the moment of conception. Um, people have been able to entrance uh, report things that happened during the, the, the pregnancy while they were in the womb that they were never told, but it's been verified. People in trance have been able to report things that were said by medical staff during a, an operation where they were under general anesthesia. Um, so the subconscious is always recording. Now, if the job of the subconscious is to keep us alive and keep us safe, which, by the way, that's the job of the subconscious, its highest priority is safety, survival. So not only does it record what we experience in order to access that it categorizes our experience in such a way that it knows where to go for what kinds of memories. So anything traumatic you've ever experienced 
Your subconscious knows where those memories are, even if you don't. So it really sounds to me like for people who have such intense anxieties and they tell me, I really don't know where all this comes from, but I'm just always anxious. It sounds like this particular approach, the therapies that you have to offer can provide some profound insights. Well, yes, but what I would say for me um, you know, uh, for me, I'm more interested in, I'll put it this way, the old phrase, the proof is in the pudding. I'm more interested, I'm not so as interested in insights as I am in resolution. Because, you know, one of the things about some types of therapy is that people, you know, um, through a process of analysis, uh, analyze things over and over and over to try and understand the median in order to relieve or resolve an issue. And I've certainly worked with people who've done that and analyzed things and feel like they have an understanding of why something persists, but it doesn't change the fact that it persists. So rather than insight, I'm more interested in resolution. So when I work with somebody, I mean, you know, they might get insights, but in my experience, insights are not always necessary in order to get relief or resolution. At this point, Patrick, I know a number of people are going to want to know, so do you currently provide services and consultations uh, for persons who'd like to be able to get some support from you personally? Yeah, I mean, I um, yes, I, I have a private practice, and of course, in this time of um, quarantine where we're all uh, sequestered uh, away, you know, I'm I'm doing that, you know, mostly either either over the internet um, or um, over the phone. But yeah, I work with people, um, and typically, I might talk with somebody, a new person you know, wants to kind of answer whatever questions they may have, you know, so that they can get an idea of whether it feels like it might be the, the right fit for them or not. Because, you know, one of the things that I've experienced over the years, you know, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And in this town, at one time, there were like three massage schools and two acupuncture schools. And I mean, if you name it, if there was an, a, a t some type of alternative therapy, it was happening in Santa Fe. And the joke around here used to be that, you know, if you went to Los Angeles where all your white people, you know, everybody was really an actor, um, in Santa Fe, you know, all of your white people, everybody's really a, a, a therapist. And so because <laughs> of that, um, so because of that, um, you know, when you talk to friends about, oh, I've got this going on, I've got that going on, well, people would, you know, always say, oh, well, you, well, you need to see so-and-so. And I've been on the receiving end where somebody has said to me, oh, you need to go to this person, they're great. And I go to them, and I don't have a good experience. And I go back to my friend, and I say, why did you send me to them? That was awful. And they go, really? Every time I go, it's great. And you know, and I've had the, the, the flip side of that experience where somebody has had some kind of a thing and I say, oh, well, you just need to go see so-and-so. 
And they come back to me and go, why did you send me to that person? That was awful. And I say to them, really? Every time I go, it's great. So what I got from that is that no matter how good a practitioner is, I think part of what happens that makes the, the experience good for the, for the client um, is a little bit indefinable. Part of it relates to, you know, rapport. You know, does that person feel heard? Do they feel understood? Does the person in my position sound like they really know what they're doing? Are they making sense? Can, can the, you know, can the client uh, relate to what I'm saying? So all of those things have an impact on whether I might or might not be the right person. So, you know, when I, when somebody is first interested, you know, I might have a phone call and talk to them so that we can sort of get through that and answer that. And then based on that, you know, we either schedule something uh, or not. Patrick, how do people get in touch with you? Well, um, my, uh, my, uh, my phone number is, um, and, and people can call or text, the phone number is 505-577-1436. So you can call or text um, at that number. And those are the quickest ways of getting a hold of me. Um, I mean, I do have uh, uh, an email, but, you know, nowadays I get so many uh, emails that are like either things I'm not interested in or a bunch of other stuff that oftentimes, you know, I may miss an email. Um, so I'm always kind of remiss about uh, about emails. It's, it's just so much stuff that it's, you know, it's easy for something to potentially get lost in the shuffle that way. And you also have a website? I do actually have, uh, depending on what somebody's interested in, I have two websites. Um, the website that people see locally when they look for a hypnotherapist is, it's kind of long. It's the where I live. It's Santa Fe, then the word hypnotherapy, then the word and, and then NLP. So it's Santa Fe Hypnotherapy and NLP.com. That's one. The other website is InnerMindSourcing.com. So and you would also is the work that I've created. And so you're also available to provide support to a person, for example, who might be living in London, England, or Paris, France, or Tokyo, Japan? Oh, yeah. Um, I have clients on both coasts of the country, and, and I've done sessions uh, with people um, in Europe um, and um, in India of, uh, for, for whatever reason. I've done a number of sessions with people in India. And we so those sessions that we do over Zoom. Patrick, we've covered a number of issues, and I've asked a number of questions. What question have I not asked that I should have asked about not only NLP but hypnotherapy? Hmm. Let me think about that a minute. Well, okay, so I'm not sure about the question, but 
but what I can give you, I'll give you the answer without knowing what the question is. Um, I think what I would like to say as a takeaway for people to get about this is it comes down to a principle in NLP, which is so fundamental. Um, I've never seen it spelled out in a book, but it boils down to this. The way we experience our lives, physically, mentally, and emotionally, comes down to the way we represent our life inside our own head. And, you know, like, for instance, you know, you can think of a memory. And depending on how you think of that memory, that memory could either be a happy memory or a sad memory or a memory that makes you anxious or angry, just all in how you represent it in your head. And what NLP and hypnotherapy allow you to do is to go into that level of mind and change the way things are represented in such a way as to change the way you think and feel and respond. So that technique of Reversing a memory is a perfect example. When you reverse a memory, you've changed the way that memory is represented in the mind, and that person will never have a feeling about that memory again. That's a simple example. But another simple example is, like, I'll do this with you. So think of a food that you like but not your favorite food, and let me know when you have it. But it's not my favorite food? It's a food you like, uh, okay. but it's not your favorite. Got okay. it? I've got it in mind. Do I tell you what it is? Okay. No, no, not yet. So on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is, yeah, I like that a little bit, and 10 is I like it the most, what number would that level of desire be right now? Oh, probably 5. Probably a 5. Okay. Now, as you think about that food, you probably have some image of it in your mind, right? Yes. Perfect. What I want you to do with that image is take a moment and make it bigger and brighter. And I want you to notice what happens to your level of desire when you make the image of that food bigger and brighter. Well... (laughs) For some so reason, when you think about that food, is it still a five in terms of how much how desirable it is, or or is it the same? Or well, it it kind of lost the connection actually for me. Um, when you made it bigger and brighter, yeah. Okay, put it back the way it was. Okay. All right. And the level of desire is back at about a five. Yeah. Okay. Slowly make it more colorful and bring it just a little bit closer. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it's more desirable now. (laughs) Right. Okay. Now put it back the way it was. Okay. So that's an example of 
a very simple change that if we change a little bit about the way you represent it, it changes how you feel. And depending on the nature of the change, we can make you want it more or less. A simple wow, little change. That, does that make sense? Can make, it does indeed. It makes a huge difference. And, of course, by asking me to do something with that, it depends on what my preference is for processing information. So especially when you mentioned the color, <laughs> that's what did it for me. Uh, I, I was thinking of pickles. And so when I really was able to see the vibrancy of the green in a pickle, then that was what it, what it was. There you go. Now, of course, that will be different from person to person. And for even within a given person, it might be different depending on the context. So if it was a different kind of food, it may not have been necessarily the color. So when somebody like me understands the basic principles, we just understand the parameters of, of where the adjustments are that we can make, then we just keep going until we make the adjustments that create the desired effect, whether we're trying to intensify something or de-intensify something. And what we just did to intensify your desire or in the first case, de-intensify it, those same principles can be used to intensify or de-intensify anything that your mind represents. And when you understand this, this is like, I call it the owner's manual for the mind. When you understand these principles, it's like having the owner's manual. It's like, oh, okay, now you know how you can start to operate and be more in charge of how your mind works. And when you are more in charge of how your mind works, you're more in charge of how you feel, and you're more in charge of uh, potentially your health because mind and body are a unit. One affects the other. I've been connecting with people in my audience now for a couple of decades, and I can't tell you the hundreds of conversations I've had with people who say, yeah, 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 I know you keep talking about how I shouldn't be eating sugar, but I know, I know I shouldn't do it. I just can't stop. I just can't do it. And it sounds like finally what you're saying is, look, it is possible to make a transformation, and you've got some tools and some approaches that really do make a difference. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're trying to, you know, hammer a nail, but all you have is a screwdriver, you're not going to be very successful or vice versa. Right? You need to have the right tools. So that's, that's what's so nice about the, the work that I do. I have a, a variety of really good, versatile tools that I can use in all kinds of ways. You know, when you tell somebody to stop doing something, you know, that's, I mean, it's like telling somebody, don't be tall. You know, you're too tall. Stop being so tall. It's like, well, <laughs> you can't do anything about that. Right, But <laughs> right. if you have tools that can change things, then when you say, you know, when you talk about cha making a change in the way somebody responds or how they think, then it becomes a lot easier. You know, you could tell somebody, you know, who has, you know, a, a, a phobia. Like I remember one person who that I worked with was so embarrassed because her phobia was about grasshoppers. And her explanation was where she lived there was a certain time of year that when she would come out of her front door, every step between her door and the driveway, you know, 50 grasshoppers would be jumping in all different directions as she was taking her steps. And it just freaked her out. 
and she was completely embarrassed by it. She just thought it was such, uh, you know, a childish thing and a weak thing and a foolish thing and on and on and on and on. And, you know, when we used a little simple technique to clear it, it wasn't that she had to steel herself to not have that fear. It just wasn't there anymore. It just didn't matter. Patrick, I know a number of people are going to want to connect with you and get the support that you obviously have to offer that would make a big difference. Could you please give one more time your phone number very, very slowly? Absolutely. My phone number is 505-577-1436. And I'm in Pennsylvania, New Mexico. I'm in Mountain Standard Time. Patrick Singleton, thank you so much for taking the time to provide this illuminating discussion of not only hypnotherapy, but NLP as ways that persons diagnosed with Parkinson's disease can find ways to be able to address the challenges that they currently express. So from the many thousands of listeners of Parkinson's recovery, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for taking the time to explain what you do so beautifully. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's what's happening here on the rather mopey shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all of the children are profoundly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact that you are connecting in and listening to this amazing interview with Patrick Singleton, who is the hypnotherapist and NLP practitioner and mentor to mentors of many thousands of individuals who do that practice, that indeed you are traveling down the road to recovery from whatever symptoms you currently experience in your own time, in your own way, using your own great wisdom and inner instincts about what kinds of steps you need to take to be able to get relief from the symptoms that you currently experience. I'm Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. For additional support and information, you can always go to our main website, which is www.parkinsonsrecovery.com. Thank you so much for connecting with us during this amazing and remarkable interview with Patrick Singleton today. We look forward to connecting with you with our next amazing radio show interview. Good day.